and so a lot of our practice actually is taking care of psychiatric patients. So I feel like it's uh, wise to at least uh, be um, the one to uh, share this very sexy topic with you guys and uh, to make sure that you know that you get um, uh, these, these psych patients that come into our ED probably um, never get a physical exam. Um, and so it's our responsibility. We get one chance to kind of do it and uh, to think about what else could be going on. So anyways, um, Mervis gave me this suggestion when, uh, when a hug is just not enough. So. <laughs> All right. So the case. So once upon a time, there was a boy who looked up to his uncle. He looked up to him because he was tall, he was handsome, he was funny, he was loving, he was athletic. In fact, he would play sports with him all the time as his old father was away traveling for work. One day as a young teenager, the boy went to play tennis with his uncle, and to his dismay, his uncle started yelling at the other players on the court. And he started saying things like, why are you talking about me, and I'll break your bones if I hear you saying that again. And the boy was frightened and ashamed and eventually distanced himself from his uncle. And it wasn't until years and years later that uh, the boy finally gained a little level of maturity and understanding and learned about mental disease. And he finally empathized with his uncle and kind of made amends. So uh, that was me um, and my uncle. You know, it was, it was just the weirdest thing that... Uh, someone you know and love really well uh, starts acting completely differently. And um, this kind of goes to our microcosm in the emergency department because we see a lot of patients, but we don't know their story. <laughs> we just see what we see. And, and yeah, we come back into our resident room and confine ourselves there. And, and part of our ways of dealing with... Um, the difficulty of an emergency department shift is to make fun of it. But just kind of keep in mind that every one of these people have a story and um, they weren't, um, most of the time, they weren't normally like this and something happened. So, objectives. <coughs> so, we are going to identify and define delirium, depression, mania, and anxiety. We are going to determine the requirements to medically clear a psychiatric patient. We are going to describe the indications and techniques for chemical and physical restraints. Okay, so really practical stuff, everyday stuff that you see in the, in the emergency department. All right. So delirium is, um, can be confusion secondary to either physical or mental illness. So it's, it's really kind of hard to say. Delirium is oftentimes described as being a sudden severe confusion and rapid changes in brain functions that occur with physical or mental illness. There's a ton, 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 tons of uh, differential that, that would that include uh, delirium. And um, I'm not going to go over any of those right now, but you, kn you know what they are. So they're infectious, metabolic, um, <laughs> drug adverse events, um, and, and, and even more. All right. So depression. Um, you know, why should we care? <laughs> why do we care? Well, because 30% of patients older than 64 who, who, who have come to emergency departments are clinically depressed, and this is in one, one study. Um, 
yet uh, more than three quarters of these cases went un undiagnosed by the emergency department. And we are the safety net of our society, so we should care. We see it a lot. Uh, we can make a difference um, um, with an individual patient and with our, our community, then we should try to make a difference. Um, and, and in some places, it's estimated that over 15% of uh, patients with major depression uh, uh, kill themselves. So um, if we can identify these folks or get them onto the pathway to feeling better and to wellness, all the more better. Um, we're not going to be psychiatrists. We're not going to be psychologists. I don't want to be a psychiatrist. I know all of you don't want to be psychiatrists. But we can help identify and triage patients and get them, hopefully, to the places they need to go so they don't end up back uh, ne necessitating an ET tube and dialysis and then become hypoxemic and brain dead because they hung themselves or, you know, overdose on X, Y, and Z. Just really quickly, a little bit about mania. Um, you know, the main symptom of mania is persistent, elevated, expansive, expansive or irritable mood. And... Um, and a lot of people uh, that were thought to be um, uh, manic and uh, famous, famous people. So just kind of kind of being um, holistic about talking about the basics of, of um, psychiatry. Anxiety. Well, anxiety is really a spectrum of disease. It, it's as simple as um, getting nervous to give a talk or uh, being incapacitating where... Um, you never give a talk in your life. So anxiety is actually a good thing. It motivates us to study for an in-service exam, to get a little bit nervous about intubating that patient. Um, but if you're crippled and uh, you can't do anything, then it really turns into something um, catastrophic. So, so there, there is a spectrum. And as with anything, we all know that there's an overlap between many of these things. So there's an overlap between delirium, between depression, mania, and anxiety. But just like distinguishing between art and pornography, it's kind of hard to define, but it's easy to recognize when you see it. Um, or is it? Popa, you're laughing. <laughs> I love Popa. He always laughs. It's so easy to make him laugh. <laughs> Happy man. So... Um, maybe it's all the pornography. <laughs> uh, or, organic versus functional etiology. So I'll, I'll let you read through this. It, it really kind of breaks down um, whether this is a medical or a psychiatric illness, and there's a, a significant amount of overlap. Um, here are some sources here if you want to kind of read it in detail. I'll, I'll spare you going through every single one of these columns, um, but just wanted to give you um, uh, that slide. And then clinical features of delirium, dementia, and psychosis. Once again, it's somewhat about the, uh, the timing and the onset. Um, and, uh, and then they have all sorts of other definitions. Other folks um, have talked about um, a, a simple way to actually differentiate between all of this. And there's something called the confusion assessment method. I don't use it. I don't know if anyone else uses it in other um, emergency departments. But... Um, it's, been, it's been documented and it's been um, validated, so something to really look at in terms of um, differentiating between both psychiatric and medical illnesses. So just wanted to throw that out there for you guys. Okay. We got through some of the nitty-gritty. Now for a case. So I have a 35-year-old female 
who arrived in my emergency department from our psych facility. So they transferred the patient over to us. As is typical, the ED's bustling. Um, it's a Monday afternoon, and um, one of the senior residents sees the patient. Tyler, was that you? No. <laughs> and the story goes that the patient was sent for medical clearance as she was found at her office three days prior at work, defecating in the middle of the office. <laughs> That's the story. <clears throat> she was agitated. She had tangential speech. And her family is unavailable. And our psychiatry colleagues are initially unavailable. This is what her vital signs are like. All right? She's got a heart rate of 125. She's got a blood pressure of 160 over 80. She's got a respiratory rate of 16. She's got a temperature of 37. And you see her oxygen saturation. Dr. Reynard, you've been awfully silent today. <laughs> silent but deadly. What is your next step, sir? I can't get a hold of him. My, my senior resident couldn't get a hold of him. At least that's what he said. Mm -hmm. Make sure she gets an IV and some fluid. Mm -hmm. um, you probably want to talk to her a little bit and see what's, if, she, if she's conversive and can you know, mm -hmm. try to figure out what's going on. Excellent. So That's good. That's her picture. She's got lupus. <laughs> <laughs> what? <laughs> How do you know she wasn't like attacked by a bear or something? <laughs> so you, you bring up a lot of good points. So you're right. The history, there is none. You have a he said, she said, she like crapped on the floor three days ago and psychiatry center over here. Vital signs and, you know, Dr. Schultz is here, thank goodness, but vital signs are vital. You, you pointed that out. The heart rate's 125. You said that's, do not pass go, do not collect 200. We are not moving further from here until we rectify or at least in our mind think about why this person is tachycardic. And then the other issue is, is she going to let you start an IV? And if not, then you got to give her something. Great. Good thought. I, I like how you're playing some chess. So the other thing is anchoring bias. Someone actually said it, it was sent by psych and they just need medical clearance so that you can send them back to psychiatry, right? So someone's saying, oh, they're already a psych patient. They have a psychiatric diagnosis. But you're absolutely right. Bridge the information gap, right? So we're busy sometimes. And w believe me, I like to take... Yeah. The, the, the road that has the least <laughs> obstacles. I wouldn't say shortcuts, but I'd say the road that has the least obstacles. But sometimes you just know you have to make that extra phone call to the psychiatric facility, to her family, to figure out what is this patient's baseline. Call the inpatient psych facility. Call the family. Extend the workup. Address abnormal vital signs. And... Uh, and if all else fails, admit them to medicine and, and let them figure it out. You know, may, maybe we don't get all the information um, in the two hours or three hours that they're going to be in the emergency department. You're absolutely right. So medical clearance, okay. This, this kind of brings up the point of medical clearance. Well, 13 to 85% of our psychiatrists do not perform a physical exam. Now, that's a wide range, 13 to 85%. If it's 13%, maybe it's not that big. But if it's 85%, you're telling me like 8 out of 10 <coughs> psychiatrists are not even really touching the patient? 
Um, so it's a wide range, and, and they're from a couple of different studies. But what I'm really trying to say is we probably have the first shot of kind of getting it right. And believe me, um, if you if, you, if we did repeated this study, I bet you it'd be somewhere in the 50% range where psychiatrists don't examine patients. And that's okay. That's, that's not what they do. Maybe, maybe they should, um, but, um, but you know, that's, what, that's what we're there for. Um, so what we're going to do, what we're going to talk about is what testing is necessary in order to determine that a medically stable, alert, cooperative patient with normal vital signs and a non-contributory H&P um, are needed. So that's not the case that we had, obviously. We had abnormal vital signs, and we don't know what's going on. We're also uh, going to discuss um, the literature on the results of a urine drug screen and drugs of abuse for the management of patients in the alert and cooperative patients, again with normal vital signs and non-contributory history. And then finally, uh, does an elevated alcohol level preclude the initiation of psychiatric evaluation in alert, cooperative, again, normal vital sign patients, which, is the, which are going to be the majority of our patients in the emergency department. So keep that in mind. Well, as you probably know, that um, this, is, this is a menu that just baffles my brain. I mean, and it's like 20 pages long. Do you know where this is from? Yeah, cheesecake. It's like, it's like ridiculous. I don't even know what to order at cheesecake. <laughs> but they have a bazillion things, and you're, I always order the same thing, you know, the, the jambalaya. I get the jambalaya, like, every time. But anyways, my point is that our psychiatrists are going to want a lot of diagnostic tests. And in reality, they probably don't need all of these tests. It's your job um, to have that discussion with them over the phone and to try and help educate your end of things um, to them. Um, remember that these are all, this is always, uh, this is a recommendation for alert and cooperative patients with stable, stable vital signs. So um, the high risk groups are patients who are elderly, substance abuse, and with no prior psych history and, no, and, and a new medical complaint. So anyone, any one of our psych patients fall into those categories, you probably have to do more tests than just the basic tests, which I'm going to tell you about. This is all Class B evidence, um, but the Class B evidence points towards you don't need any routine diagnostic tests. You don't need a CBC. You don't need chemistries. You don't need a TSH. You don't need a T4. That's Class B evidence. All right. The urine drug screen. Well. We know that the utility of a urine drug screen is pretty poor. And um, I don't know, is Dr. Suchard here? Yes. Oh, and you know, Dr. Suchard, you know, I, I know has told us time and time again that the, he doesn't need a urine drug screen to tell you if they have a toxidrome or an indication to be intoxicated. So, so really, there's really no class one or two studies that evaluate this in terms of medically clearing a psychiatric patient. There are a lot of class three studies that are kind of mixed. But bottom line, the utox is inexpensive, but it really should not delay a psychiatric eval. So if our psychiatric uh, colleagues want a urine tox, I think it's reasonable. If the patient is not providing a urinalysis for us because they are belligerent or you absolutely need to strap them down and put a Foley catheter in them, I think it's 
it, it, there's, there's not enough evidence to suggest doing more harm than good, so I, I wouldn't do any of those things. I would say, look, we tried. We tried to cajole them. We gave them food. I gave them, you know, X, Y, and Z, and, uh, but it just didn't work, and I'm sorry. <laughs> Alcohol intoxication, well, there's no BAL threshold for accurate psychiatric evaluation. Once again, just reiterating the fact that if they say they drank eight, I don't know, uh, Mickey's Ice and they seem intoxicated, then they probably drank eight Mickey's Ice, and you don't need to prove it with a number or, or a breathalyzer. If they're able to talk to you, they're able to talk to psychiatry, and um, that's what uh, we should do. I, I think it's useful to point out that not all psychiatrists endorse uh, that. I, I tend to agree with you, mm -hmm. but um, usually they will have some limit for which they will not respond until they reach that. It's clearly not evidence-based, but just as sort of a, it, it shouldn't surprise you to hear that, uh, and you can try it and educate them. Um, but it's unlikely to be successful. So just so you understand, um, just because the evidence doesn't suggest it doesn't mean you're not going to have to deal with it. Yeah, no, that's true. I think a lot of these things, it's your institution and trying to change culture, but, you know, when you're there in the emergency department, you, you, you know, it's not time to break your head uh, arguing these things when you have 15 other patients to go and see. But this is a slow process. So if you have ever seen me with our psychiatry rotators in the department, the first thing I'll do is print out the ACEP clinical guidelines for them for clearing a psychiatric patient in the emergency department, and, for that, and I hand it to them. And they're all very thankful. And that guideline was produced by not just emergency physicians, but psychiatrists as well. So it was a joint collaboration. And so it, they're like, oh, wow, okay. And I said, you know, just pass this along and talk about it in your morning rounds. And I don't know if it works, but it's my way of um, trying to not bang my head against the law. Is there anything that says when we get like these kids, not kids, but teenagers that come in there, suicidal maybe or something like that, and they're obviously drunk, and they're like, oh, I'm going to go for a break with me, and I said I want to kill myself, but now I'm sober, and I was just drunk. Is there anything that looks at those people are at increased risk for suicide? Uh, well, the so um, yes, people who are intoxicated often behave um, uh, and act and have uh, thoughts that they may not normally have uh, when they're not intoxicated. Um, so if it's on a case-by-case -case basis, and this whole notion of trying to risk stratify people with uh, suicidal ideation is kind of very difficult. So I've done a lot of research and reading on suicide and depression, especially in the emergency department. There's no single scale that they use that can help differentiate those things. The things that are a little more worrisome is a history of an attempt in the past, access to a gun, alcohol abuse, other psychiatric illnesses, um, those kind of things. So um, extremes of age are usually it. So adolescence and then elderly um, uh, Caucasian man, actually. So th those are those are kind of the general risk stratifications, and also uh, being um, uh, s single or widowed, so stuff like that. So so drugs for acute agitation. Now you're you know you're in a room and you see someone getting agitated, and uh, so you're like you try to talk them down. You've already done the, uh, the sweet talking, you've, uh, you've offered them um, the nicotine patch, you've 
told them that uh, things are going to get better and I understand how you feel and you've turned the lights down, you've turned, you know, Sade on, you've done all sorts of things <laughs> and it's just not working. It's just not working. You know that feeling, right, Mervis? Yep. <laughs> <laughs> so, so what do you do then? Right? You've done all of your adjuncts. You've done what you're supposed to do. So we're going to talk a little bit about tip, typical antipsychotics, atypical antipsychotics, and benzodiazepines. Okay, so, so these are the ones that we're going to talk about. Your typical antipsychotics. Well, they block the D2 receptor. It's unclear how it really reduces aggressive behavior. But, you know, we have some side effects. And you guys remember the side effects from, from Megan's lecture with some extrapyramidal symptoms, including, you know, rigidity, dystonia, tremors, akathisias, and tardive dyskinesias. They have some anticholinergic side effects and can also prolong the QT interval. Um, the ones that we typically use in the emergency department are haloperidol. You know, um, it is not FDA approved um, for IV use. Um, is that correct, Dr. Sushart? as far as you know? Uh, I don't know. Okay. So uh, in my last reading, I, I remember them saying it's not FDA approved for IV use. We've used it often. I mean, I've used it, I don't know, hundreds of times, IV. And anecdotally, I can tell you I've never had an issue. Now, it does have this theoretical prolongation of the QT interval. And um, oftentimes, people in our institution, if you are going to give it IV, you have to have them on a monitor. Um, I don't think that's all at all evidence-based, but... In fact, a lot of these things correlate with the use of a very expensive new antipsychotic that they want us to use in place of how long it's so expensive nobody does it. Mm -hmm. So then mysteriously, all of a sudden, case reports appear of people getting alcohol with cardiac complications. The same thing happened with uh, droperidol mm -hmm. and nausea. A new uh, expensive antibiotics came out that they wanted us to use. So I... I not to get into the conspiracy theory too much. You have to be very skeptical about a lot of these things that are not evidence-based. Mm -hmm. uh, and the timing that these happen, it's very interesting that many of them are timed to come out or to, to be associated with the release of an expensive new agent that fits that indication. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And you have to be careful who to assign the blame for that on. The FDA just responds to the information that they get. Mm -hmm. Somebody else decides if they're going to give it to them. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So, um, just keep that in mind at our institution, and uh, you know that uh, haldol, uh, haloperidol can be given intramuscularly as well, and uh, that's just as safe, not quite as fast acting as you give it uh, intravenously. But if you do have um, an extremely agitated person, um, you can give droperidol, and uh, it's very fast acting and it's more sedating than haloperidol. It has a really short half life. And its uh, rapid onset um, has made it pretty popular in the past um, to use for the acutely aggressive patient in the emergency department. Now, I don't, we don't have it, I believe, on formulary. I don't, I don't think we have it on formulary. I asked Dr. Burns this question about a couple of months ago. And, um, but, um, you know, I've used it several times in training, and it works really well. There was... Uh, I don't know if this was about 20, 30 years ago or so, a black box warning with droperidol, and it fell out of favor. And um, so since that time, haloperidol has kind of been the typical antipsychotic used most often in sedating an aggressive patient. And uh, that's probably what I would do. I'd use haloperidol. 
There's really only two contraindications um, for typical um, antipsychotic use, um, and they're also known as neuroleptics. Does anyone know what they are? Well, one is a true allergy to it, right? If you're allergic to it and you're going to get anaphylaxis. And the uh, other is if you have an anticholinergic overdose. So um, those, are, those are the two, all right? So, all right. Um, atypical antipsychotics, I'll just tell you, um, we really shouldn't be using these. There's something called the CADI trials, which was the clinical antipsychotic trials of intervention of effectiveness. It showed no advantage in treatment uh, or side, side effect profile. We use Zyprexa here quite a bit. Um, the reason I think we're able to use it or do use it is because it comes in an ODT form. And so it, the, the ease of administration, I think, allows its use. But if you're able to give something intramuscularly safely to the patient and to the nurses and the staff around you, I, I, would, I would suggest going that route. If it's going to mean like someone getting hurt or potentially hurt, then a Zyprexa or a Lanzapine might be, might be um, a good choice as well. I mean, yeah, you got to get an EKG on an agitated patient. Yeah. So it's like, no job, no experience, no experience, no job. But you can't get an EKG on the patient. You don't need that. Yeah. No. <laughs> <laughs> all you need to do is get the EKG on the salt. Right. <laughs> uh, Ziprazidone, don't use it. Only use for agitation, for schizophrenia, really limited data. Risperdal, don't use it. So essentially, out of all the atypical antipsychotics, the one that you would... Uh, use the most is the olanzapine or Zyprexa, and really, you know, the ODT is 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 fine. Um, my my favorite choice is use haloperidol as much as possible. I am. Uh, why, why are we not using the Zyprexa? Is, is that an indication, or was there bad evidence? Uh, no, the the evidence for haloperidol is pretty strong to use. And for olanzapine, you're, it's still very safe to use it, I think, um, and it, there is utility in using it. So, the, but my my personal preference is to use haloperidol. Yeah, he, he I, I, yeah so in my prior institution, we used the president a lot, and we we had a we had good experience with it. It didn't act as quickly as haloperidol did, mm -hmm. um, but it, it worked fairly well. Mm -hmm. um, so I, I wouldn't close the door on that one entirely, um, and it's. Especially in the unit, it's really good for agitation when people are on the bed. You need to have that anxiety component of the sedation to take care of. Well, 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 the ziprazidone is definitely poor in, in trials. So there's a CADI trial, and there's, it's definitely poor. You, you should not be using ziprazidone, geodon, and risperdal at all in an acutely agitated patient. That was my question. Yeah, no, you shouldn't. Okay. And you, you can review the literature yourself, but, but uh, just to, it's a New England Journal article in 2005. I'll be happy to share it with you. But, uh, but, but the, the Zyprexa or Olanzapine, yes, it still has, uh, it's still probably equivocal to the, uh, the typical antipsychotics. So how much and how often can you give the haloperidol? So the, the typical dose for haloperidol, intramuscularly anyways, should be about 5 milligrams. Um, and people say you can redose that every 5 to 10 minutes. Um, if you're giving it IM, you have to understand that haloperidol does take about 10 minutes, 15 minutes to actually take effect. So normally you can, and I'll talk about this a little bit later, couple that, uh, some people say coupling that with a benzodiazepine. So using both haloperidol and Ativan, for example, 
um, in combination has been um, shown to be a, a little bit more effective instead of keep, keep redosing the typical antipsychotic. Yeah, if you have an IV in it, it's really easy. Mm -hmm. So a good strategy to use is to um, have security there, um, tie them down in, in, either in soft restraints or hard restraints, and then give them the chemical restraints as well. And so they're not hurting anybody, they're not hurting themselves, and then you wait for the, uh, your, your chemical um, interventions to kind of take effect. So you don't have to keep redosing them and having a side effect profile that will eventually, although rarely, eventually catch up to you at some point in time. Yes. I don't know if this is useful or not, um, but I've seen a lot of the psychiatry residents come down and they do this thing they call it like 52-1 or something where they, they'll give like Haldol, um, Benadryl, and Benzo, Ativan. Well, I mean, the Benadryl obviously is very sedative as well. But you know, I in in all of the studies that I've read, and in in my own in my own anecdotal evidence, which are hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of patients, usually the combination of a typical antipsychotic and benzo does the trick almost all the time. Yeah, they're probably trying to prevent the exoprimal side effects. <coughs> Which hasn't been shown to actually prevent extrapyramidal side effects. Is that what Dr. Sushar just said? Okay. All right. So, so some FDA black box warnings against atypical antipsychotics um, used for agitation in patients with dementia. So oftentimes we don't know if our patients have dementia or not. So this is uh, another reason to try to stay away from atypicals, including olanzapine. Okay. Death rate is 1.6 times higher than uh, when in, in using 16, uh, 17 randomized controlled trials. Um, the deaths were cardiovascular or infectious. So I'll, I'll be happy to share all of my, um, my readings with you guys. Um, so benzos, we know they all, how they work. They potentiate GABA, and all of these benzos, as you know, can cause re respiratory depression and hypotension. So you have to keep them monitored. Um, diazepam or Valium really should not have any role in the acutely agitated patient, okay? And um, uh, lorazepam or Ativan or midazolam or Versed is probably uh, your first choice. Uh, I think, uh, uh, you know, lorazepam would be my first choice. But um, it's effective in reducing agitation, and we know about the side effects. Uh, lorazepam is really where I go. It's very effective, the studies have shown, in combination with your typical antipsychotics. It's first-line agitation from sympathomimetic overdose. You already know that. Sushard has told us a bazillion times, you know, use Ativan and use it liberally 
uh, when you have ETOH or benzo withdrawals, and that's that's really the way to go. And and um, and then in, in this instance, I think a lot of times Dr. Sushard uh, Valium sometimes comes up as being the preferred benzodiazepine in especially uh, withdrawal or delirium tremens because of its metabolite and its um, and its. Uh, non-agitated from their ethanol withdrawal. If you did it with Valium, it has such a long half-life, exact metabolites with such a long half-life that you're essentially finished. Mm -hmm. There is no taper. It's an auto-taper as your body's metabolizing the way. Okay. That doesn't help us much in the ED, but that's more useful for the inpatient services and outpatient psych services. Okay. And uh, we talked about midazolam, and but you might have to redose it, so that always piss off your nurses. So always uh, think about that, and you know you have an acutely psychotic patient, so you want to go in there and intervene as little as possible, um, just to keep things quiet and not to um, uh, agitate uh, agitate your acutely psychotic patient. All right, and then um, here's a kind of a summary of what we talked about here. Um, I'll let you kind of uh, browse that really. Um, but uh, once again, uh, hitting home um, some of the key elements is your uh, typical antipsychotics as along with your benzodiazepines are the uh, first line choice. And then in the elderly, we, you can see the doses here as well, haloperidol, one to two milligrams IM for elderly patients. So really just, just kind of uh, throttling back on some of the, the dosing with the elderly patients. So summary, summary of our pharmacologic treatment, use a benzodiazepine or typical antipsychotic for the initial drug treatment for an acutely agitated, undifferentiated patient in the ED. If rapid sedation is required, consider droperidol instead of haloperidol. Um, we don't have it here. Use an antipsychotic as monotherapy for both the management of agitation and initial drug therapy for the patient with a known psychiatric illness for which antipsychotics are indicated. Use a combination of oral benzos and an oral antipsychotic for agitated but cooperative patients. So, pitfalls to avoid, okay? Pitfalls. Well, I thought he was just drunk. Well, examine the patient for signs of organic causes for agitation, all right? Because sometimes they may not just be drunk. They may have another reason, such as a head bonk, um, you know, subdural, so on and so forth, hypoglycemia. You got to really, you know, make sure that you don't have this anchoring bias that's come from EMS, passed down to your nurses, and then you've seen, you know, uh, you know, Mr. Johnson before, and I know who he is, and you know, maybe it's not the right Mr. Johnson. I don't know. She's a nursing home patient that's always like this, altered. Well, you know, once again, this goes back to our own patient. Yes, that patient did have lupus, and um, that's a very good observation, Dr. Raynard. And uh, bri bridge, <laughs> bridge the information gap and assume altered mental status until proven otherwise, okay? If you don't have any, have any information, do not admit them to psychiatry. Admit them to medicine and figure out, try to figure out what's going on. He was so agitated we couldn't get vital signs on him. Um, we need to get vital signs. So, and, and treat vital sign abnormalities appropriately. So sedate them, calm them down, encourage your nurses, figure out a way to get vital signs. You can do it. 
the elderly, demented person was agitated, so I gave him olanzapine. We already talked about that. Use benzos or atypical antipsychotics. It's a big no-no black box warning on that. The keys um, to this talk, assume agitation is secondary to delirium and search for causes. No specific screening tests are needed in the alert, cooperative, stable psych patient. Do not delay evaluation or disposition due to uh, a utox or um, a serum alcohol level. Monotherapy with benzos or typical antipsychotics are first-line treatment in the acutely agitated patient. All right. So all in all, um, you know this is a this is a basic lecture. You guys probably already know all of this, but I just wanted to hit it home so you heard it once. It's um, it's kind of a core lecture. Um, and I just want you guys to uh, be aware of that so that uh, you can have these discussions with your psychiatrist and make those decisions jointly. And yes, you might have to tease out a TSH and T4 to finally get that patient to wherever you need, wherever they need to go. But I'm just letting you know so you have the information in your back pocket. Is there anything that giving them a benzo or a antipsychotic or verse, either or, would interfere with the psychiatric evaluation? Well, I mean, the benzos and some antipsychotics can make them a, a little more somnolent and sleepy, which is its intent. Right. It's to kind of sedate them. So, yes, they, they may not talk to the psychiatrist at that point, in which it makes a, a psychiatric evaluation pretty hard. But, uh, heck, you don't want the patient going ape in your department, hurting themselves or anybody else. So they showed that, because one thing that the psychiatrists have always told me is that the Zyprexa mm -hmm. is better at calming without sedating. And I so, don't know if that's been looked at that and, and, and that is true. It's, it has less sedation than haloperidol or droperidol. Uh, that's absolutely true. Here are some questions for you guys. Um, which of the following is characteristic of the, of the diagnosis of delirium? You have four choices there. Question number two is a 34-year-old female with stable vital signs and a history of depression arrives in the ED by herself and states she is feeling depressed and suicidal the past few days, what diagnostic tests are necessary to determine her medical stability? And then the final question, question number three, is rapid tranquilization is a safe and effective means for controlling agitation. Which of the following drug combinations, uh, which is, uh, combinations is useful? Can psychiatry refuse medical clearance? Like you say, uh, I mean, I know sometimes like if push comes to shove, and there's just, there's no way you can get this patient, like a lab for this patient, like oh I want a free T4, and it was medically clear. They said, no. They they may <laughs> they may say that our psychiatrists here are not as um, hard nosed as that. I think it's an active discussion, and oftentimes they'll request a number of things, and and then we are pretty nice people for the most part. I think we end up doing what they ask for reasonably. I mean, if they say, oh, we want a CT and LP for someone who's a known uh, manic depressive, um, I would say, come on, you know, no. And I would say no. But yes, do they have the ultimate decision? I, I don't know. Uh, that's a good question. I have to ask Dr. Langdorf. If ultimately there's a diagnostic test that you are unwilling to do and psychiatry is unwilling to take that patient onto their service, um, I'd probably have an attending to attending discussion. If they were still being um, uh, obstructionist, um, then I probably would admit them to medicine and say, you can talk to psychiatry. Since all of the psych admits are technically transfers, mm -hmm. they could, if they wanted to, refuse. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, I guess they're going to a different hospital, even though they're with us. Yes, sir. As emergency messages, we know what we really need, and we know it's our job to make it clear. But unfortunately, the, psychi the psychiatrist do dictate. You know, they'll tell me like, "Okay, I need an alcohol at all." You can argue you don't need one, and you, you you're doing the clearing. But yeah. in that sense, I, I would suggest that it's just usually easier for you to get the patient out to just do the test, and then that way they have no questions. So unfortunately, yeah. a lot of times it's a shotgun approach. It's all the labs, urine, drug screen. Alcohol, thyroid, all those things, unfortunately, because it's just, from a practical sense, like what you need to do to get them out of the ER. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I know. It's not worth the battle to say, well, you shouldn't do that. Yeah. Do they accept, like, breathalyzer, or do you have to get, like, a serum? Um, you know, we don't use breathalyzer, but, you know, they go so far as they, it has to be below, they'll give you a number. It's, that's, that's the paradox where they're asking you to medically clear if they're dictating what you need to do to medically clear. So, you yeah. know, it's, it's a pick your battle kind of thing. You just pick mm -hmm. to do it the way you need to get them out. I, I work with an emergency physician who would fight this battle every single time. Mm -hmm. Because he decided with him on the phone with Sykes saying, I'm not going to get a urine drug screen. You can get one. It's an outpatient test. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah, I agree. I, I think um, on a real real-time basis, I, I try tend not to have those arguments uh, because there's uh, other fish to fry. But I try to do it upstream with education and whatnot. And I'd, I'd be happy to give this lecture to the Department of Psychiatry, although I'd have to kind of um, change my stories around a little bit. Yeah, I, was just, I was just curious because I had a patient that I was going to transfer to ETS, and he seemed like a pretty reasonable guy. He's probably mm -hmm. anxious, so I tried to do the nice thing, give him a little bit of Ativan before he went to ETS. Mm -hmm. And the nurses were like, ETS will absolutely not accept anybody that has received Ativan. Um, and then I was like, well, I was like, but at what point? In the right, I just didn't know at what point it, it becomes. Like, who has the final call? Like, can people, can psychiatrists refuse BC patients, et cetera, et cetera, so. Well, yes, uh, uh, this, this goes again to playing the game rather than playing, uh, listening to the evidence. And you're right, uh, sometimes they have their own rules and they are the gatekeepers. They, they hold all the keys. And so, <laughs> you know, when the deck is stacked against you, you basically got to play the game and get your patients where they need to go because, number one, uh, inpatient psychiatric beds are closing and there's less th now than there were 10 years ago. The number of psychiatric visits in the emergency department has steadily increased over the last 15 years. Um, and uh, we're at an institution where a lot of people don't have um, uh, appropriate uh, insurance. And so that makes our job very, very difficult. And the ED is probably not the best place to have a stable, non-agitated um, uh, uh, patient uh, waiting to get agitated again. Um, we know what to do, but it's, it's just not the right place for them. And in that scenario, you're, you're at a bend, you know, the argument should be that that doesn't include the patient being a danger to her or herself or being suicidal. So yeah. You know, should not have anything to do with what they yeah. Let me just finish with that case that we presented. So that patient did indeed have lupus encephalopathy, okay, encephalitis. And what ended up happening was, my, this was uh, at, a, at a different hospital that I worked at when I was an attending, 
and the senior resident was like um, not one of the best senior residents and um, he uh, uh, he refused or, or did not want to call the psych facility which is similar to our psych facility just kind of across the block or two blocks away and talk to the attending psychiatrist there he did not want to call the um, the uh, patient's family or attempt to call the patient's family were you looking up contact information all of which would which would have probably taken him less than five minutes to do this was during normal business hours I would say around three or four o'clock so in in my um, oversight of the patient um, I uh, uh, got sidetracked and then the new resident came on at five o'clock they switched the new resident came on and immediately made one phone call to the to the psychiatrist and said this patient has lupus and then I went back to the previous resident I said this patient has lupus and then he goes oh really oh, okay all right oh, well like, you know okay, right. you know that kind of thing very very defensive and I said so what are we going to do next and he looked at me with that uh, you know that that look that he wasn't sure what he wanted to do the other resident picked up the LP kit and tapped that patient and had like protein through the roof and we admitted her, gave her steroids, and you know, I, I knew the patient wasn't going home. I knew something was wrong, but just imagine if we had just turned this patient right back around the turnstile, <laughs> sent him back to psychiatry. I mean, that's terrible, you know. So you got to really keep that in mind when, when, whenever you're receiving some anchoring bias, and bridge that information gap. So.